0: You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches, it sent out its branches to see its shoots to the river. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regards for this vine, and the stock you, your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hands be on the man of your right hand, the, the son of man who, who you have made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your. Name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Thank you, fellas. Thank you. If you, if you all don't know the Stuhl Miller family, please make the effort, take the time uh, to introduce yourself, get to know them. You'll be glad that you did. Um, they, they are encouragers, they put their money where their mouth is, they live it out. Uh, living on mission is not just a a, a good idea; it's what they what's what they do. And um, I'm I'm blessed uh, to know you all. And, uh, last night, uh, 20 plus, 20 25 men were in their neck of the woods in San Marcos, and he got to hang out with us, which was good. We were over there at the San Diego Axe Throwing Company. Who knew there was an axe throwing company? And but uh, Tyler Jones um, found out and. He wrangled up the guys, got us out there, and, and uh, who knew that, that uh, Johnny Epson would turn into, like, a vicious, bloodthirsty Viking once you put an axe in his hand. I mean, he was intensely competitive. It was a little bit scary, um, but I feel better knowing he's on our side. So, good. So, uh, I've learned. I don't think it's just me. I've learned that my attitude toward life is greatly affected by whether or not I feel like I'm living a life that makes a difference. a, A life that matters. See what I've observed to be true of everybody I've ever met was that you need a clear, a clear sense of purpose. So you can endure, so that you can persevere no matter how bad life gets. And if you lose sight of that, you can't even handle your own frustration, let alone how everybody else frustrates you. When I lose sight of it, I I feel scattered, I feel spread too thin, I feel drained, I feel overwhelmed and it all seems pointless. Anybody else here know what I'm talking about, or is this just me? Yeah. I also need more than just a clear purpose. I need the right purpose. Sometimes I can easily fall into thinking that my job is my ultimate purpose. After all, it's ministry, right? I mean, that's, that, should be, that should be number one, right? Right? wrong my job your job my ministry your ministry is not your ultimate purpose when it is if 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 things happen to go the way that i think they should if things happen to go the way that that i hope i i might be okay for like a minute right but we live in a broken world and god uses that to remind me that's not my highest purpose you know, when things don't go my way, if that's my highest purpose, then it, it, when things fall apart or, or curveballs, you get sucker-punched or, or just, you know... maybe an unfunny, uh, just comedy of errors, it, 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 can mess, it can mess me up. It can mess with my head. Um, mess with my heart. So my job, your job, my ministry, your ministry, whatever it is, your, you know, your sports, your career, your, your, your field of education, whatever it is, that cannot be your ultimate purpose. It cannot be. And I need to be reminded on a regular basis of what my true purpose is. And I need it to be clear, and I need it to be simple. Now, we are continuing our our series called The Songs of Jesus, Connecting with God in the Psalms. And and I want us to better understand Psalm 80 that was just read to you. I want us to understand it better by by looking at Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. Psalm 80 is in the Old Testament. Jesus' teaching is in the New Testament, and it's based on passages like Psalm 80. Jesus is constantly showing us the inextricable connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He teaches us that from Genesis all the way to Revelation is about who Jesus is and what he has done. And the connection between the two is the gospel. Who Jesus is and what he's done. So using Psalm chapter 80, we see that Jesus... King Jesus gives you, gives all of us, a crystal, clear, simple purpose that can define your life and carry you through the good times and the bad times, no matter what. He makes it simple. He gives us at least four ways here uh, to to live it out. So let me give you a little context to Jesus' teaching. Jesus had just been some intense time with his disciples, they bonded, they loved each other, Jesus' teaching and preaching were were powerful, Um, because of Jesus, the disciples' lives were turned upside down, inside out, transformed, and now he just told them he's going to leave, and they're not going to see him uh, for a while, and they're totally bummed out. And so he reassures them. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. And then he reminds them that they're going to have all eternity together. But then Jesus moves from reassuring them to challenging them. Jesus tells them, rise, let us go from here. And he uses a common Greek phrase that basically means let's go to meet the advancing enemy. Why? Because he just told them that the prince of this world, the evil one, is coming. So let's engage the enemy and do battle with evil, death, and darkness. Rise up, let's go. This right here, Jesus is giving them, giving us a kind of a call to arms, if you will, to do battle against darkness and evil that is so destructive for so many people. And then he gives us his his marching orders. And so we're going to look at that. And the first one, if you're taking notes, using the insert in your bulletin, uh, Jesus gives us our purpose. Jesus uses this this famous illustration in the Old Testament and this this passage uh, passages from the Old Testament using this illustration written long before Jesus ever shows up. In the Old Testament, we see that God planted a vine. In Psalm 80, it says, "You brought a vine out of Egypt," talking about the Exodus. You drove out the nations and planted it. In other words, God brought his people into the promised land. You cleared the ground for it. It took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered in the vine's shade. The mighty cedars were covered with the vine's branches, and it sent out its branches to the sea, its shoot to the river. Now, that's an impressive, powerful picture and what was God's purpose for this vine? God's purpose for this vine was for it to be fruitful. That his people would, would, would declare in both word and deed God's glory to the nations so that they would turn from their destructive idolatry and find life in, in worshiping the Lord. But the vine wasn't. Fruitful. And in the book of Isaiah we read, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of, of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then he looked for a crop of good grapes but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard, he says, than I, what I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad, it says. Now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed, and I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. And God brings judgment to this unfruitful vine. Back in Psalm 80, it says, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they, they perish at the rebuke of your face. This right here is devastation. But then... God makes a promise. He promises to revive the vine, a, a day of salvation. And Isaiah, the Lord says, and that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. In days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom, talking about God's people. And it, they will fill all the world with fruit. And how will that happen? Psalm 80 says, turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, that the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. So the reviving of the vine has something to do with God's son. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man Whom you have made strong or raised up for yourself. Then, when he is raised up, he will not turn back from you, he will give us life, and we will call upon your name. When Jesus shows up many, many years later, his fellow Jews, his friends and his family and everybody else they knew would have been familiar with this great vineyard imagery and and the promises that it represented. Promises that they longed for, especially since they've been so oppressed by by the Romans. They were longing for this restoration. So they're all familiar with this. They're steeped in this imagery from the Old Testament. Then Jesus shows up and listen to what he says to them. I am the true vine. That got their attention. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser, or the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He just (laughs) shined a spotlight on this Old Testament vineyard imagery that just if anybody paying attention, they would have just been blown away by what Jesus was saying. Jesus just claimed to be the true vine of Psalm chapter 80. He just said, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. What Jesus is telling them, and th- this would click with them. This is why they got, so many of them got so upset and murdered him for blasphemy. Jesus is saying with these words, I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament. I am the promised vine. I am the son of the gardener. I am the fruitful vine. I did everything for God's glory so that people could see what God is like, turn from their destructive idols, and worship me. That's a big claim. You know... Everybody has to come to grips with who Jesus is. And you're going to come to one of two conclusions. That he's, you know, on one hand, either a liar or out of his mind, or um, he is who he says he is. You cannot dismiss Jesus as just a good teacher. You have to deal with the claims that he made. He's either who he said he is, Or, and if you don't believe that, the only other alternative is that Jesus was a liar, and he was out of his mind, and he has deceived millions and millions and millions of people and should be avoided at all costs. It's one or the other. Jesus makes this claim: I am the vine, Psalm 8, 8, chapter 80. And then Jesus gives us our marching orders. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, that you bear much fruit, that you bear much fruit. Those are your marching orders. Jesus is calling for you and for your life to join him in his purpose, to glorify God by bearing fruit. Fruit glorifies the garden because it shows that that the gardener is a good gardener. In the same way, we are sent out into the world to live in a way that shows the world how great and how good our God really is. To live lives that proclaim in word and deed the beauty of His wisdom and His righteousness and His amazing grace so that the world will see what God is like, turn from their destructive idols, the wrong purposes, and find life. In worshiping Him, Jesus calls us to be fruitful so that others might know Him and love Him and live with Him forever. That's your purpose. That is your mission. That is a mission given to you by King Jesus. The question is are we going to take that seriously? Is that really what's going to define your life? You living on mission, bearing much fruit in your family, in your neighborhood, in your school, in your work. For for some of you, it might mean that you live on a mission in a land that's never heard of the gospel, these nations that we've been praying for. I want to tell you, it'll look different from person to person to show the beauty of God so that others might know Him and love Him. And since that is your purpose, you know what? You can live on mission even if you're sick and bedridden. Do you understand that? So let me ask you. What does your life say about your purpose? What does your the way you spend your time and the way you spend your money say about your purpose? What, what does your preoccupations say about your purpose? If someone were to observe you, watch how you spend your, your time from day to day, and you spend your money from day to day, and, and could somehow read your thoughts or journal or whatever, what would they come? what conclusion would they come to about your purpose? It's a very important question to ask, because it's the whole ball game, right? So many people I'll talk to you have no real sense of purpose in life. Most of the time, our mission is to live our life for ourselves, for our own achievement, for our own respect, for our own name, for our own self-worth. We live for our kingdom, for what we want. And I'm telling you, there is a day that is coming when we will see how empty that all is. Until then, we need help, right? How in the world can we glorify God with our lives and bear fruit, especially when we know how much we mess up, and we mess up all the time, amen? That's right. So how is our purpose accomplished? That's our second point. I'm going to count out on this one. My last point is about, you know, two minutes long to camp out here. How is our purpose accomplished? First of all, Jesus says, "We must be in the vine of Psalm 80." Jesus says, "Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do what?" Nothing. No branch on its own can bear fruit. So stop trying. <laughs> the branch is totally dependent on the vine. In the same way, no person could bear fruit unless he or she is vitally connected to Jesus. We are totally dependent upon Him. Jesus, right? He is defining a Christian. Call yourself a Christian. What is Christianity? Think about Christianity? What it's all about? Jesus is getting at. A Christian is a person who has put their faith in Jesus, and everyone who puts their faith in Jesus is vitally connected to him. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not vitally connected to Jesus. That means that if you are a Christian, you will bear fruit. You just will. Now, don't misunderstand Bearing fruit is not what connects you to Jesus. All right? Bearing fruit is not what even keeps you connected to Jesus. But it is the evidence that you are connected to him and that you are abiding in him. Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. And then he says something that should be very sobering for all of us. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, God does not want this to happen that's why he's given us a mission. That's why God calls us to live on mission. This is why Jesus has to be central to our church and to our lives and to our families. This is why people who claim to be Christians need the gospel too. It's not just good news that gets you into heaven and then you apply all these biblical principles you know, to, to grow in Christ or become more mature the thing that saves you is the same thing that changes you and that's the gospel of who Jesus is and what he has done so Christians you can't say I've heard Jesus already I heard all about it tell me something I don't know give me some fancy graphs about the end times and how that's all good that's really interesting and deep no we are called to focus on who Jesus is and what he's done Because that's what produces fruit. And Christians need to hear that. Just look, people who claim to be Christians need to hear that. I (laughs) I mean, ultimate example. Judas, he looked like a branch just like all the other disciples. But he wasn't, was he? He sold Jesus out. If we claim to be Christians, but there's no change in our hearts, if there's no change in our lives if there's no growing in Christ-like character then over a period of time, okay, if that's not, th- then, then something's wrong. And these words of Jesus should be a wake-up call for us. We must be in the vine. So let me ask you, are you vitally connected to Christ? Are you abiding in him? Or is Christianity just kind of some scheme that you agree with and that's good enough for you? Are you vitally connected to Jesus? And Jesus expands the, Psalm, uh, expands the uh, Psalm 80 vine illustration. He goes on to say that if we are in him, we will make the most out of God's pruning. He says, I'm the true vine. My father is the, the gardener. Every branch of this Uh, that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear even more fruit so to produce as much fruit as possible the gardener also prunes the branches and how does he prune the branches there's a couple different ways here jesus says already you are clean because of the word that i've spoken to you jesus is saying that that god prunes us with the word of God, as the Word works in, in your life, in your heart and life, it makes, us a more, it makes us more attractive, more authentic witness for Jesus Christ. And we need to ask ourselves, how important is the Word of God in my life? And I want to ask you, how important is the Word of God in your life? If it's not, if you don't care about it, something is seriously wrong. Something, there's a major disconnect. I'm not just asking if we agree with the Bible. I'm asking as as if we use the Bible to engage relationally with God, to know him more, to experience his presence and his love and his grace. The Bible is all about Christ, the one who delivers us from death and destruction and eternal judgment by paying the debt that we owed and then showing us how we can express our love to him and the people around us through loving obedience. So if you want to grow in if you want to grow in fruitfulness with a clear sense of purpose you will look to his word for a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. Because that is what changes us from the inside out. God uses the word of Jesus, the gospel, to prune us That we grow in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And what are those called? Right, the fruit of the Spirit. I'll add this. God uses hard times and suffering to prove us as well. We all know one gets a free pass on suffering, right? We'll either suffer for the right reasons or the wrong reasons in the right way or the wrong way. But we all suffer in this life. But thank God you can use the suffering to produce fruitfulness. It's one of the primary laws of of spiritual growth, both in garden and spiritual growth. Pruning produces New growth and fruit. Hebrews 12 says that none of it seems pleasant at the time because it's painful, but later it produces a harvest. I'm telling you, I, I live in life with all of you, talking with all of you, praying with all of you, you know. Interactive discipleship with all of you. I mean, I've seen this over and over and over again. Many of you have told me your personal life experiences and how God worked through a horrible situation in your life and used it to grow you. And when you tell me about that, it encourages me and my faith. I mean, it sucks when it's happening, but then you experience life-changing redemption. I know some of you are going through hard times right now. And I want to remind you of something as you're going through it. Your gardener loves you, and he knows what he's doing. He loves you. He knows what he's doing. Embrace the pruning. Third, Jesus continues to tell us about this Psalm 80 vine. He says, ask and we shall receive Jesus gives us the key to answer prayer when he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. If my words abide in you. Now, Jesus, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. Jesus knows that we won't believe this, so he repeats it over and over again at least seven times From chapter 14 to 16, he says the kid answered prayer is praying consistently with the words of Jesus because the words of Jesus express the purposes of God and the desires of God. So, uh, E. Stanley Jones, a theologian and missionary in India who spent a lot of time with Gandhi, by the way, he writes this, Prayer is surrender. Surrender to the will of God and cooperation with that will. If I throw a boat hook from the boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to the will of God. You want to grow in fruitfulness? Ask, and you shall receive. He answers that prayer. Pray in a way that is consistent with the words of Jesus. Jesus actually shows us how to pray, and he gives us an example often called the Lord's Prayer. And he says, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be glorified through me. Start there, and you'll be praying right on target. And then the fourth way. We can live this out. Our God-given purpose is obey God's commands joyfully. Jesus shows us what it's like to abide in the Psalm eighty vine. He says, "It's the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love." If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. Jesus, in his words here, he highlights love and obedience and joy, and and he links them all together. But you know what? Churches, it's so easy for us to mess this up all the time. Often conservative churches can seem obedient, but not loving and joyful. Often liberal churches can seem loving and joyful, but not obedient. But listen, obedience without love and joy is not really obedience. And love and joy without obedience is not really love and joy. Joyful obedience flows. Knowing the love and grace of God, that's what the world needs to see. And that's the life that we are called to live. That is our purpose. That is your purpose. That's what brings glory to our gracious God. And the key is knowing the love of Christ. Paul tells us, Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. But holy and blameless. You see, it, it always leads you to the cross. Every time. This is what Jesus does for us. Okay? Okay? And what other response could there possibly be than to remain in his love? Because there is no greater love, is there? And now it is our joy to obey him and show him off. Our sister here in our church, Kim Crandall, says this in her book, Christ in in the Chaos couple paragraphs but listen we must always read the bible's commands in light of the gospel otherwise what are often called the imperatives of scripture quickly become just another set of obligations in our already out of control to-do list you all know what she's talking about when all along they're supposed to produce grateful acts of love for our savior And she says, I found it helpful to look at Scripture's commands in a because-therefore framework. Because Christ died for you, making you fully loved and, and fully acceptable before God, you therefore are able to obey the command to love your neighbor, for example, armed with a biblical understanding and a biblical motivation. This means... You don't do good works to try to secure your position before God or man. You do it because your neighbor needs your good works and because your good works serve your neighbor and give testimony to the goodness of God and your love for Christ. You and I, will never display love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control in ways that are not self-exalting unless we do it out of a deep and abiding understanding of the gospel. If we do not live in the because, Christ's life, death, and resurrection, the therefore will become burdensome and we will throw in the towel when things get tough. The gospel is the power of God to save us and change us. Jesus first loved us, and he proved it by living the perfect, fruitful life for us and then going to the cross in our place. That is why we love Jesus, and that is why we want to obey God for his glory. I'm telling you, if you see that and you believe that, what other response is there? So I'll close with this short, final thought. When it comes to our purpose, we must depend on Christ. If we are in him, we will bear fruit. If you are in Christ, you will bear fruit. It's an inevitable blessing. Now, no one can draw out the implications and the applications for for your life better than you, right? It improves when you do that in community and you get a sounding board and other people to speak in your life. For now, I just want to challenge you to apply this to your heart and life as much as you can in this setting. In your own heart, ask yourself this question. How would my life be different if my purpose was to glorify God because I love him? Ask yourself, wherever you are in life, whatever it is that you're facing, wherever God has placed you, whatever job you're in, whatever neighborhood you're in, whatever family you're in, whatever crisis you're in, How would my life be different if my purpose was to glorify God because I love him? What would I stop doing simply because I love Jesus? What would I start doing simply because I love Jesus? What would I commit to? How would I serve others? How would I make myself available to them instead of just living for myself and me time? How generous would I be with my finances? How would I love the people that God has placed in my life simply because I love Jesus and want to show him off? Does anything come to your mind? Make a mental note or a physical note. Do whatever it is so you don't just walk out of here and it falls out your ear. Write it down. Pray with somebody over it. One simple thing. I know people who just have done this recently and everything's changed drastically. Man. I'm encouraging you to trust God in this. This is a purpose worth living for. This is a purpose worth dying for. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. This is to my Father's glory. Amen? Amen. Man, would you bow your heads with me?